Hello, and welcome to their big and their 99 cents episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hi. We're also here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. Of global domination fame. We are going to talk about the man who really does seem to want global domination, Elon Musk. Of course, we have to. I apologize if you've had too much of Elon Musk. With any luck, this will be one of the last times we talk about him for a while. We are going to talk about work perks and swag and how and whether and why companies want people to come back into the office. We are going to talk about Arizona iced tea and how good value it is. Thank you, Arizona iced tea, for keeping your soft drink such good value we have a slate plus all about the kardashians wherein we wonder whether they are going to put in a bid for twitter i mean it seems to be the thing <laughs> to do these days uh it's all coming up on slate money when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So the good news is that after last week, nothing happened in the world of Elon and Twitter. So we don't need to <laughs> talk about Elon. And, oh, shit. I, I have to say, I woke up on Tuesday morning thinking that I had my newsletter put to bed. And then Elon put in a $43 billion bid for Twitter. And I was like, oh, oh, dear. I will say... Pulling up the, the duvet comforter a little bit to reveal the inner workings of Slate money, that all three of us were in the Slate Slack saying, please, God, let us not have to talk about Elon. Can we just not talk about Elon? <laughs> <laughs> also, by the time we record this and it comes out, something else will have happened and whatever we're saying right now will be completely invalidated. So, Well, we can just put for the record an update for our listeners <laughs> up to the point we are taping this, which is Friday morning, April 15th. So we can tell you sort of what has happened, what we think could happen, which I feel like is almost anything except that Elon Musk will actually buy Twitter. And then if we have updates, you know, you could just follow us on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> I, can, I can tell you with 100% certainty, by the time you listen to this on Saturday morning, Elon Musk will not own Twitter. That's like, that's 100% certain. He doesn't even have financing lined up. He appeared in Vancouver talking to Chris Anderson of TED, and Chris Anderson was not the world's greatest and most, you know, sharpest interviewer, but he did actually ask, like, do you have funding for this? And Elon said, basically, no. He said, I'm very rich. It's like, yeah, but that doesn't mean you have funding. He famously doesn't have a lot of cash, Elon, right? Because he, all of his wealth is, is tied up in Tesla stock and SpaceX. Well, let's back up a little bit from where we were last week and just lay out the fact pattern, right? So 
Everyone woke up on the East Coast Thursday morning to the news that Elon Musk had filed notice with the SEC and texted the chairman of the board at Twitter to say, I want to buy you guys for, what is it, some like weed joke price? 5420, yeah. 5420. And this is my best and final offer, and I think I can really fix Twitter or whatever. So the whole financial press on the East Coast then rips up their newsletters and their morning updates and frantically starts typing um, because they have to type whatever Elon Musk says. And then just add to the drama after all that happens, which really is just an SEC filing of some, I mean, really just a guy saying he's going to buy a thing without any further information. Then Elon Musk goes on stage, as Felix is referring to, at this TED conference, and basically says he doesn't know how exactly he's going to pull off this purchase, and he, he doesn't really have a plan, and he's not in it for the money, which is an unusual thing to say. And he wants to improve freedom of speech, and he wants to have lots of stuff that you don't like seeing on Twitter on Twitter, because that's really important for society, except for like all of the bots, which are perfectly legal, but he wants to get rid of those. Like there's a lot of like internal contradictions in what he was saying. It's not super thought through. Obviously, when he first announced with an SEC filing that he had bought a 9.2% stake in Twitter, he's like, I don't have any strategic designs here. That's straight out the window to the point at which he now says, if I can't take over the company, then there's no point in owning the stock at all. I mean, it's been a spectacular U-turn in the space of about one week. And the fact that he can change his position so spectacularly in the space of one week, I think we all agree, means that he can change it back to whatever he likes in a week's time. Like, this is by no means the end of the saga, but maybe he's put Twitter in play. Like, it does seem... There are people thinking about maybe trying to buy it. Apparently, Thoma Bravo is looking at making a bid. But the big obvious acquirers, Google, Facebook, you know, any big tech company, Microsoft, Salesforce, I, I feel like they're all non-starters for antitrust reasons. Yes. It does seem like Matt Levine put out like a special emergency newsletter this morning. <laughs> Poor <laughs> sort Matt. Of laying it He's all like, out. I'm meant to be on holiday, but God damn it, Elon. But it does seem that, and what he said was like, there's no easy out from all this. Like Elon has kind of like put it in play and now something kind of has to happen. Like he can't just walk away and sell all his shares because then the share price would fall like a really lot. But like he can and it would and then... Like, that's okay. I feel like that's not such a bad outcome. The okay. only people, like, not that many people particularly care what the share price of Twitter is. A lot more people care about what happens to the product and what happens on Twitter than care about what the share price of the company is. Also, that seems like it's that's his entire goal, aside from just uh, gratuitously trolling the SEC, which is always a hobby of his. It's not as if it's plausible that he actually wants to own Twitter and be responsible for all that entails. So wait, when he went up on stage and said, I want to own Twitter, do you think he was lying? I think that he's he floats these things without really thinking them through that much, just to gauge public interest in these things as an option. I don't think that he actually has even given any thought to what it means when he says, you know, I don't believe that the full potential of Twitter or the full value has been unlocked. You know, people haven't really asked him in any granular way what he means by that. So the main reason why the 
right wing generally embraced him and the sort of Silicon Valley libertarian types embraced this beard and seemed to support it on Twitter, which is how they support things these days, is twofold. One is that they have an anti-woke ideology and they believe that Twitter has become woke and that it has been gratuitously banning lots of people for being unwoke and that's not cool and you shouldn't ban people for being unwoke. And then the second thing, which is related but definitely separate, is that Musk came out and said very explicitly that he didn't believe in bans really at all, maybe sort of timeouts, that you should be able to say anything you like on the platform so long as it's legal, so as long as you're legally allowed to say it. And he said that multiple times in the interview. And that is a very unsubtle way of saying he wants Donald Trump back on the platform. So anyone who thinks that Twitter is a force for creating support for Donald Trump, which it clearly was and probably would be again, is going to be behind this bid just for that reason alone. What was eerie to me about this news cycle where we all woke up and Elon Musk was driving the conversation about something that honestly isn't real yet. It isn't a real thing yet. He has no plan. It really felt like a Trump news cycle of the old school. Like it had all the hallmarks of exactly his MO. Like you wake up, Trump has been tweeting at 5.30 in the morning or something. The whole news media is like, you know, like a car crash is all magnetically attracted to this moment. The whole conversation is directed towards this mess made early morning, and in the end, nothing happens. It is the same playbook, and and I don't know what I'm supposed to make of that, but I didn't care for it. <laughs> well, Elon has a lot of Trumpy qualities. I mean, he, he thinks that rules and norms don't apply to him. He enjoys the intention. He's, you know, a gleeful troll. I, I think uh, there, there's a reason why it feels so familiar. And he has that personal exceptionalism. Like he said uh, in the TED interview, he was like, I know more about manufacturing than anyone else, any other human on the planet, which is a very Trumpy thing to say. So is it worth like walking through, if Elon Musk really wants to buy Twitter, is it worth walking through how he would do that? Yeah, I think probably not. I mean... Uh, you know, as as you say, it's more performative than that. And it's going to be very easy for Twitter's board to say, where's the money? We are not going to take this bid remotely seriously until you can show us the financing. He's going to be like, but don't you know I'm very rich? And they're like, that's not good enough. We need to see the financing. And then he's going to wave his hands in a kind of Trumpian way and, and say, I'm very rich, I can afford you. And they're going to be like, yeah, that's not good enough. And they're just going to reject the bid for that reason alone, never mind the fact that the amount he's offering is clearly lower than anyone would have to bid in order to, you know, affect a successful takeover bid for Twitter. You know, he's offering 54 bucks. It was more than that in October. But I actually think it is a little bit worth unpacking because to like the average person, here's Elon Musk. He is on the top of the list of the richest people in the world. He is number one. So to a normal person, you're like, yeah, okay, he has $240 billion according to this list in Forbes or whatever. He's bidding $43 billion. I, I can do math. 43 is less than 240. So why can't the dude just like write a check? 
Well, it's funny. It's it, technically there. There is a way that he could do it, but not without I think tanking Tesla stock because he'd have to sell off so much of it, and he's already borrowed quite a bit against you know what he owns already. I don't think he has a lot of credit capacity left. I, I don't know how he would do it logistically without doing some combination of selling off Tesla stock, finding interesting equity partners who would be on board with him, and. I don't know, X, Y, Z, two or three other elements. Yeah, he had this idea with the Tesla take private as well, which never happened. And he said it again on stage in Vancouver. He's like, I don't need to own all of it. Anyone else who's a current shareholder and wants to stay a shareholder can also remain a shareholder. And that means I wouldn't need to buy their shares. They could just keep on owning their shares, which A, doesn't work. Like that is just not a thing in M&A. And B, he then, you know, three breaths later said, I'm not interested in the economics, I'm not in it for the money. So like, why would anyone want to be a shareholder of an Elon Musk plaything, which is not being run for profit? Right. So in other words, his money is mostly tied up in stock, specifically Tesla stock. He's limited and he can't, he can only sell like a quarter of the holdings he has or something by the bylaws of the company, right? But if he sells a big chunk, well, so according according to the according to the Tesla laws, he can Tesla only laws. borrow against a quarter of well, Tesla bylaws. <laughs> yeah. um, he can only borrow against twenty five percent of his Tesla shares, but he's already blown through that. So, like, he controls the company. He could probably change those bylaws if he wanted to. But you know, as as Matt pointed out this morning. There aren't that many banks who are going to lend significant amounts of money more or less in perpetuity against Tesla at a $1 trillion valuation because no one really believes that trillion-dollar valuation of Tesla. The way that he could raise the money would be by literally selling a bunch of Tesla shares, which he is absolutely capable of doing and has done. That would have huge tax implications so he would have to pay a huge amount of capital gains tax to do that, which he is probably willing to do. Maybe he would do that. Maybe that would have a negative effect on Tesla's share price. Maybe he doesn't care if Tesla's share price goes down from a trillion dollar valuation to a you know seven hundred billion dollar valuation. It's like it's still a crazily valued company. Like there's a lot of ifs, ifs, and hypotheticals and rabbit holes we can go down. But the big thing is that he's not going to have to because they're not going to accept the bid. And he did this like really cutesy thing on stage where he kind of hinted that he might go hostile and bring out a tender offer. And I just don't see that happening. It seems difficult for the richest man in the world to like pull off this purchase, which I think is kind of interesting on its face. But maybe it's not surprising to like finance wonks, but like... It's not so easy. Well, the difference between, like, if you are, a, say, a private equity company with a $100 billion fund, that means you have $100 billion that you can just spend on whatever you like. If you are an individual who owns a bunch of Tesla stock that's worth $100 billion, you don't have $100 billion to spend on whatever you like. You don't have cash. All you have is a bunch of stock, and then you need to do financial engineering to raise cash. So, like, having $100 billion means very, very different things, depending on whether you are, you know, the founder of a valuable company versus whether you are an actual corporate investor with cash that you are being tasked with putting to work. Yeah, Worth noting, the little asterisk on the richest people list. Yeah, money isn't money isn't quite as fungible as you might think. Yeah. Also, I just want to make this point that 
no, I don't believe, and maybe you'll disagree, I don't believe any female human being could get up on stage as Elon Musk did on Thursday and say, my strong intuitive sense is that having a public platform that is maximally trusted and broadly inclusive is extremely important to the future of civilization. Like, I just don't think a woman leader could go up and be like, my intuition tells me that this is a good idea and that everyone in the media would write a story about it and be like, what's going to happen? This is so brilliant. I think they would <laughs> they would treat Elon Musk like Marianne Williamson, the woman who you know ran for president a few years ago on her intuition. So this language, by the way, comes from the late night bull sessions that Elon used to have with Peter Thiel, right? This is a philosophy sense of the word intuition where like philosophers like to talk about like what is your intuition about this or that and then whether intuition is true or false and yeah elon is taking that to the next level but anytime you wind up you know one o'clock in the morning having a pointlessly circular conversation about trolley problems basically what you're doing is you're interrogating your intuitions and that's something that peter Thiel is really into and elon musk is too yeah i think you also have to consider that he does this so much that it's it sort of set an expectation for everybody that he might not be serious about anything that he's saying because this is part of his mo if you just took it, everything that he said so far at just complete face value he would sound unhinged because he, you know, well, initially he took, sound his, <laughs> took his position two weeks ago. And then now he's insinuating, again, if we're taking what he's saying at face value, that suddenly he, he has this new body of information where he is completely sure that he has no confidence in management and the only way to fix the company is to take it private. And somehow he did not think that two weeks ago when he took the initial position. So there's a lot of stuff that he says that I completely agree with you. No female CEO could ever get up and say that. But a lot of just normal CEOs can't get up and say the stuff that he does. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is like Elon. Like, you know, it's true. Most male CEOs could never say that either. But one of the things that did change between his initial SEC filing and his bid is that he went on a Twitter rampage and started tweeting a lot about should we convert Twitter headquarters into a homeless shelter? Should we delete the W from Twitter? You know, blah, 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 blah. And one of the things I've been thinking a little bit about is that Twitter influence, at least when your Elon runs bi-directionally, people definitely talk a lot about Elon's influence over the Elon fanboys who are legion on Twitter. And that he has a lot of followers and like literally just in terms of the number of people who follow him on Twitter, it is 80 million, which is way more than Donald Trump ever had. And people think like Elon has influence over those people and that is all true. But I think that uniquely among people with, you know, eight digit follower counts, he actually listens to Twitter. He's on Twitter a lot. And those followers and those fanboys and the Mark Andreessen's and Keith Reboys of this world are influencing him via Twitter. And that when he buys up stake in Twitter, and then suddenly everyone is on the Twitter saying, Elon, you should buy it. Elon, you should do this. Elon, you should do that. You know, you should shake it up. You are the amazing Elon, and you can do things to Twitter that no one else can do. That influences Elon. I buy that. 
He does seem to engage in the comments. Yeah, he replies more than, he is in the at replies more than like any other person <laughs> with that kind of follower account. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I want to talk about Elizabeth Scone because Elizabeth was back in the paper of record this week with a column about work perks. And Elizabeth, why don't you just give us the the top line? What is a work perk and is it good or is it bad? So the, the thrust of the column is that a lot of people don't want to come back to physical offices now for good reason. They spent two years working from home and they see the advantages of it. So employers are having to roll out office toys and perks to sort of try to draw people back in. But some of them, I, I think in the post-pandemic environment, just seem paltry and maybe even infantilizing. You know, if you've gotten used to not having to commute for two hours, having your employer say you should come back in because we're going to have a pizza party on Friday or we'll give you a pair of company branded office slippers is just insulting. <laughs> and I sort of I wrote a little bit about if you haven't seen it there's an Apple Plus show called Severance that's a kind of dystopian thriller about office life and one of the punchlines in it is a recurring gag where uh, the workers get really just meaningless gifts or, or sort of depressing existentially depressing Rewards for performance in the company. They get, you know, a, a party or bar full of melon balls or Chinese finger traps or, you know, just <laughs> when you see them rolled out on the show, you feel a, a palpable sense of depression. <laughs> and it's just a really good, I, I think, expression of the malaise that I think people are feeling about coming back. One of the things that I definitely noticed about Silicon Valley startups in contra 
distinction to every other company I've ever been in is that if you walk into the office of some startup, there is an extremely high probability that an extremely high proportion of the people you see in that office, and I'm talking pre-pandemic here, are going to be wearing company-branded swag. They're wearing like the company t-shirts, the company vests, the company baseball caps. The company gives out all of the t-shirts and something, and then that is that becomes like the expected thing that everyone wears into the office. And I saw that a lot when I used to walk into companies and have meetings. And it just felt like a weird Silicon Valley thing. But now I'm sort of re-examining it in the light of what you're talking about. And it seems creepier now. Yeah. It's a little like, you know, wearing the band t-shirt if you're in the band. Right. I was reading that company swag I always call it swag, and then everyone makes fun of me. Company swag stuff we all get is increasingly popular now as a way HR departments are trying to like engender, you know, team feeling between coworkers when we're all kind of like everywhere hybrid. And another reason companies are more into the swag now, especially like the performance wear sweatshirts and whatnot is because people don't know how to dress for the office anymore. So like, they're like, here, just wear this. <laughs> company branded blazer. <laughs> no, but it's usually like a, like I have two new jobs in the past, like eight months. It's always like a sweatshirt or something and a mug, travel mug. So like you could show up with your sweatshirt on and your, your hat. I, I was hats. on Twitter this week, going back and forth with Chris Hayes, who was mentioning that he was turning up to 30 Rock now in full sweats, like head to toe, like sweatshirt, sweatpants, like he's in do not give a fuck mode, like before he changes into his work suit that he keeps in a closet before he goes on air. <laughs> but Elizabeth, you compared the the perks and the giveaways to like going to the carnival and getting the cheap the cheap toys, only worse. And I thought that was really good because yeah, it's always it's, less fun. It's like post-it notes or something. Yeah. Some, I mean, some of the <laughs> swag is so just bad and, and cheap and, and meaningless to adult human beings who have to come into the office and do real work. Um, so I, I thought of it as, you know, you go to an arcade and you spend a lot of money and you get cheap little toys and you don't mind that they're cheap little toys because the experience of being in the arcade is fun. That is not work. That's not the office. <laughs> So sometimes these these bribes just are are sad and depressing. What one thing I have noticed is that it is much more natural and fun and even desire. Like I kind of like, and I see a lot of people doing this, people wearing and using the swag from previous employers. <laughs> I have I have like this wonderful old Reuters ski jacket that I love and I wear all the time and I'm like this is fine as long as I don't work for Reuters it's fine you don't feel like you're weirdly being forced to show for your employer you know I, I know a bunch of people who used to work for Fusion who still use a bunch of you know Fusion mugs and things that they have lying around if you don't actually work for the employer then sometimes the swag can be fine but wearing your own employer swag yeah it does feel a little bit like you're buying into some cult. Well, what are companies supposed to do to entice you back to the office? Just give you a big raise? Yeah, answer Honestly, that. it always comes <laughs> down to that. Just give you a big raise. That is always the answer, actually. Well, no, but then, like, well, okay, well, let's stick on that. Like, Elizabeth, do you think it is feasible, a good idea for companies to pay more money to people who go back into the office? 
Uh, yeah. I mean, and I said this in the column, I think part of people's frustration with these, you know, dumb perks is that they feel like they're being shortchanged in terms of overall benefits or the pay is too low, or they feel like they should be compensated for having to do something like, again, commute two hours to get to an office when they can do their job perfectly well from home. But if they can do their job perfectly well from home, doesn't that effectively penalize the people who do do their job perfectly well from home and aren't getting that extra pay? Yeah, but presumably there are the reasons why people want their workers back into the office don't always make sense anyway. <laughs> it's it's usually, a, it seems like a lot of it's really a control issue. It's It's managers not fully trusting their employees to be productive at home, wanting to keep tabs on them. So, you know, I, I think a well-designed benefit system would, would compensate both parties for people who want to come back into the office and have good reason to do it. You know, they would get some kind of trade-off there. And people who want to stay home, you know, that kind of flexibility is a sort of a perk by itself. Yeah, that's true. I, I want to point out that a lot of people have just been at work this whole time because I wrote about it recently in my newsletter at Axios and people emailed to be like, hello. We go in every day and we always have been like, shut up. And I was like, Fair. yeah, we do. We do have like, <laughs> sometimes we do fall into this hole of like looking around us at New York City and thinking that everything is knowledge workers in New York. But it's right. not like most no. of the country just just kept on going into the office the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I think and one thing I didn't get into in the column is, you know, and this sort of bounces off of what Felix was saying earlier, this sort of company branded swag that's designed to, you know, increase loyalty. That's not new. Early mid-aughts, I remember, and this may still be the case, you know, first-year analysts at investment banks would always get issued the company tote bag with Grosgrain straps, and it would say Goldman Sachs or whatever. And people would walk around with those like they were, you know, $10,000 luxury bags, because it was a status symbol. But I think a lot of what we're dealing with now isn't so much that, It's although that's some of it. It's the idea that, you know, you come back into the office and there's this kind of employer-mandated fun that I, I have always been opposed to. The, the, the famous foosball table that sits unused in the middle of the office to make it seem like you're a fun office, even though you're actually not. Yes, it's, it's performing fun without actually having any. But like Google was really famous for having a campus which would provide free food 24-7, would like pick up your dry cleaning for you, like anything you could possibly think to yourself, I need to go home now in order to X, with the possible exception of literally sleeping, they'll be like, no, you don't need to go home to do that. You we, you can do that from here. And they would just keep you in the office that way. I think largely on the assumption that if you're at home, you're not going to be working as hard or as much or as effectively. I think what the pandemic has done is, is it has changed that assumption that the likes of Google don't feel insofar as they want people in the office, it's not because they feel that when people are at home, they aren't working. I think that used to be the assumption, but that's now gone. I think the reason or one of the big reasons companies want people to come back to the office is because these social interactions, though Elizabeth might argue they aren't fun at all, they serve the purpose of making you want to stay at the company. If you have those social ties, you won't quit. And there's been a lot more quitting, as we know, in the past like year. I'm not saying it's because people don't go to the office necessarily, but like that lack of social connection at work is definitely it makes retention harder, a hundred percent for sure. But but the social yeah, the social ties are very real, and people want to work with cool people. 
you know? And I remember that when we were hiring you at Axios, you were like, oh my God, do I get to work with Neil Irwin and Matt Phillips? That would be amazing. <laughs> and that's definitely a perk. And if you get to like physically be with people like that, it is qualitatively different and often better than just working with them in the form of squares on a computer screen. Yeah, the one counterpoint to that, though, is that uh, there have been surveys of black workers in particular where they say they, they prefer work from home because they're less likely to face direct discrimination. They feel like people are treating them better. Yeah, for sure. It's so complicated. You don't have to code switch as much if you're working from home. But doesn't that just create a sort of effective discrimination thing where, like, the black workers stay at home and the white workers will come into the office and bond and wind up, like, chasing each other up the ladder. Yeah, that's also a thing. Yeah, it could if, if I think everybody's allowed to choose which one they want to do. Which is kind of what you're suggesting they should be, right? I, I think that's generally the best option, but it's, you know, there are trade-offs either way. There's also, I've been thinking a lot, because there's all these articles and tweets about, you know, people don't want to go back because it's so much better at home. I wonder what percentage of the reluctance to go back is just social anxiety. Like people who have been at home, you really get used to not talking to people and it, it's kind of like spirals on itself and you just don't want to do it. You're you're honestly afraid and anxious. And I think a lot of the conversation is like just people feeling anxious about it. I've been thinking about this a lot. There's really? this Yeah, there's <laughs> this um, concept that my wife came up with called hibernation that basically – what we all did during the pandemic or what a lot of people did during the pandemic is they went into a sort of hibernation mode. They were they just stayed in their apartments or their houses and they cut themselves off from the kind of external stimuli that used to be normal. And that felt very cozy and comfortable. And then going back to that status quo ante is stressful. Like going back is stressful and even just contemplating going back is stressful. And navigating that change from hibernation mode to city dweller is something that people don't often do. I'm kind of doing it right now after spending three months in Ireland, more or less on my own in full-on hibernation mode, and now like <laughs> finding myself in midtown Manhattan. And it is a bit freaky, I will attest. Were you nervous about going back? You've been in the office a bunch of times, Felix. Yeah, I, I wouldn't actually have gone into the office as much were it not for, you know, a spouse kicking me out of the apartment. <laughs> I think also, you know, it just it just affects people if they're introverts. You know, if, if you get used to having this sort of regenerative alone time and then you have to go back and be around people all the time, you, you may feel like it's, it's going to hurt your productivity or make you feel worse. So I don't even think it necessarily is is the pandemic or having done this for two years it's it's for some people this is just a better way of working and they don't want to abandon it definitely let's talk about arizona iced tea and apologies to la times people who i didn't say la times in my piece although i did link to it the la times is the outlet that went viral this week by talking about arizona iced tea which comes in 23 ounce cans. I did the math for those of us who only speak metric. That's 680 milliliters or more than 90% of a bottle of wine. You get a lot of iced tea in these cans. And the cans stand out, A, for being big and B, for having a whopping great big thing on them saying 99 cents. 
and they have been big and they have been 99 cents for 30 years. And if you go back to 1992 dollars, the current value of a 99 cent Arizona iced tea can is 48 cents. So they have just been getting cheaper and cheaper in real terms and they are not going up in price. So if you're looking for a place that is not seeing any inflation, Arizona iced tea is the place. And I have a theory for why this is the case, but Elizabeth, what's your take on this? Well, I, I think, you know, the, the interviews with the, the family that owns it, they say we don't want to pass inflation costs onto our customers, and we want to be very open about the fact that that's what we're doing. And it, and it sort of reinforces, I think, you know, one sort of not conspiratorial, but thought that people have about inflation, which is that it is occurring, but also corporations are deciding that they can just charge higher prices and then blame it on inflation. And and that is literally what inflation is. You know, that, yes. that when companies take advantage of their pricing power, that is inflation. And when companies don't take advantage of pricing power, then you don't have inflation. And if you look back at the history of Arizona iced tea, <laughs> there was this very key moment, the it stretched on a while, actually it stretched on for like seven years between 2008 and 2015, where the big question was like, are they going to be a company that sells out to Nestle or Coca-Cola or Tata or someone who will then maximize revenues, maximize profits, take advantage of whatever pricing power they have? Or are they just going to stay a family-owned business making more than enough money for the family and that's good enough? And what happened was there was a big fight between the two co-founders and the co-founder who wanted to sell out to the profit maximizers effectively lost and he had to sell uh -huh. his 50% stake for a mere billion dollars. The poor guy is, you know. Hope he's okay. I hope he's okay. Um, and the other guy wound up basically controlling the company and is very explicitly saying like, this is my main priority is just keeping this thing at 99 cents. I will cut costs as much as I can. I will use less aluminum in the cans. I will squeeze margins if I need to. And I'm just going to keep this at 99 cents. I will spend little, if any money on marketing because the cans just market themselves by saying 99 cents on them. And is this optimal from a maximizing profit perspective? No. If I had a fiduciary duty to shareholders to maximize profits, like would I be able to get away with this? Probably not. But I don't. I'm the only shareholder. I can do what I like. I'm a billionaire. I'm a multi-billionaire. So do I need the extra money? No. I can just keep it at 99 cents. Also, they have higher margin products, too. There's, they do? Yeah. They, they have a few other products that are higher end. Like They have a hard seltzer product and and I'm not sure that they're keeping the prices down on those. So it could be that they just think of the 99 cent can as their marketing secret weapon. Oh, they definitely think of it as a marketing weapon with the big 99 cent um, sign on it. I think Felix was like, it's kind of like a gas station. Or was the LA Times piece who said like how the gas station says how much gas costs. Arizona iced tea says how much Arizona iced tea costs. And it's a big marketing boon for the company. Yeah, the, I feel like, when I was growing up, you used to see that much more often, which was objects like marketing themselves as great value and being cheap and specifically saying how much they cost, like to the cent. And now the things that advertise themselves on actual literal prices to the cent are many fewer. It's hard to think of many beyond the dollar stores, which are no longer dollar stores and are now selling things for a buck 99 and a buck 25 and that kind of stuff. 
an Amazon iced tea. There's also a psychological effect with any price that ends in a nine. Just the keeping it below a dollar is, you know, makes people think that it's cheaper than it is. Like if you went just up two cents or something, you know, people perceive the difference to be much larger than it is just because it's, it's a weird cognitive thing that we have. So my question is then, if well, I mean, Felix answered it, but just as a thought experiment, couldn't U.S. companies do the patriotic thing to fight inflation and stop raising prices and break the back of inflation without the Fed having to drive us into a recession? Can't they just, like, take the hit? Emily Peck is channeling her inner Jimmy Carter here. <laughs> well, Come I mean, on, companies, just, like... No, don't raise It's prices. ESG. How hard it's can it ESG. be? It's ESG. You have to think of all the stakeholders. We don't want, no one really wants inflation. No, certainly no one wants a recession or unemployment. Right? Right? CEOs that are listening. So stop raising prices. Just like chill out a little. Profit margins are fat and healthy. Yeah, they, they don't want shareholder lawsuits either, though. That's the. Don't That's shareholders want less inflation too? Don't we all not want to see 8.5% inflation? <laughs> anymore um it's interesting that like companies have the power to stop it like right like i don't have i can't do anything but if i'm the ceo of like amazon or something i could put a dent um what one of the most invidious forms of inflation that happened this week was peloton it raised its monthly fee to $44 from $39, and it de decreased the price of a Peloton bike. Right. The new price of a Peloton bike is $1,445. But that's the whole point, is, is that like everyone who already has a Peloton bike, they're not selling many Peloton bikes at the moment, so it's not like they're making much revenue from selling bikes. Where they're making their revenue is from these monthly fees, and if you're locked into the Peloton ecosystem by owning a Peloton, you really have no choice but to just suck up this 20% hike in monthly fees and presumably they will just continue to raise the price over and over again because you don't have much alternative having bought the bike that's pricing power people it's a good idea though i think because that's where their their revenue long term is going to be coming from anyway the bike should have always been cheaper because it's a lost lead it's it's just how you get people subscribed it's like my printer i mean on the one hand yeah like the sell the Razors for cheap and then right. make lots of money on the blades model makes perfect sense. On the other hand, though, on, at some level, people are just going to be like, okay, $44 a month is a lot of money to pay in perpetuity per month for Peloton. But what's even scarier than the prospect of spending $44 per month in perpetuity is the prospect of Peloton being able to raise that number whenever it likes mm. for any or no reason. And it could be $150 a month next year, and there's nothing I'm, I'm going to be able to do about it. And that is going to make people reluctant to buy a Peloton in the first place. So my number in the numbers round is 6.7%, which is an inflation rate. In America, as we all know, inflation is 8.5%. In Argentina, inflation is 6.7%. So, wait, hang on a sec. No, that's how much Argentina inflation was in March. Month-on-month -month inflation. Whoa. The actual inflation, if you annualize it, is about 55% in Argentina. And as a result, the central bank has raised its interest rate to 47% is the overnight interest rate in Argentina now. But then, <laughs> this is glorious. 
the overnight interest rate is so high that what you need to do to effectively annualize it is to take into account the fact that you get interest, you can reinvest that overnight interest and get interest on your interest. When you include the interest on your interest, the effective annual base rate from the central bank is 59%. Wow. There's this IMF rule, basically under the current IMF regime, the central bank has to keep interest rates higher than inflation. So if inflation is at 55%, then they have to have interest rates at 59%, which is just wow. Why is it like that there? What's going on? Can I just answer with one word, which is Argentina? <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, like I, there, is, there is a point at which Argentina is just going to Argentina. Um, but we can go into detail about what's going on in Argentina in a future episode if there is um, demand for that. Um, Elizabeth, do you have a number? Yeah, my number is $735 million, which is the Treasury Department estimate for the value of the world's largest super yacht, which has now been seized by German authorities because it has connections to a Russian business tycoon. But that's not Roman Abramovich, right? Is that a different yacht? No, it's a, let me see, it's Alisher Usmanov. Yeah, Alisher Usmanov. Yeah. Good for him, man, losing his $735 million <laughs> yacht. Like, you know, that you could, I'm, do you think he misses it? <laughs> I feel like this is just a game of global battleship at this point. We're just knocking all of the super yachts off the board. <laughs> the Moskva is on the, bell, is, a, is in the bottom of the sea. The Moskva was, was sunk. That was the the big news, the big like non-finance news of the week. The fuck you Russian battleship ship has now been sunk. I read that now all these governments that are seizing these yachts now have to pay for the upkeep of the yachts, which is kind of which is a non-trivial amount of money. And at some point, yeah. they're going to have to work out what what to do with the yachts. But the governments can afford it. I think they can afford it, and they probably make money off it in the end because they can do some cool auction or something, right? An auction off the yachts. Maybe. Or uh, if you're Elon, you would turn them into homeless shelters, right? <laughs> God. I have a number. My number is 10.3%. That is the percent of workers in the U.S. that are in unions, and it's half what it was when the BLS started tracking this particular number in this particular way in 1983. And I use this number for a story I wrote this week on um, how the big labor unions are so unaccustomed to excitement around unionizing. They've just been managing this decline that they're having a hard time adjusting to what appears to be a new kind of landscape where there's actual interest in the private sector in unionization. And there's a lot of people inside big labor that are like, you need to stop focusing on the politics stuff and actually organize workers. And it's getting the ship turned around is pretty hard. Someone was like, in the private sector, if if your company all of a sudden you've been selling like widgets, no one ever wanted the widgets, and then all of a sudden everyone wants your widgets, you would start making more of those widgets. But big labor is hasn't yet started making the widgets in any appreciable way, if that makes sense. They haven't responded to the demand yet. There isn't like the chart that you ran with your story is astonishingly down and to the right, given how many <laughs> headlines we have all been seeing over the past few years about union this, union that, these people have voted to join the union, these people have created a union. Um, you would think there would be at least a little bit of an uptick at the end of the line saying, look, 
It's going up. Finally, for the first time in nope, it's not it's still going down. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty steady. And it's it's not it's not really unions' fault. I mean, there's been a very, very strong campaign on big business and the politics to destroy unions, and it's been extremely successful. So that's been happening. Lots of laws passed and But like if you look at what what's amazing is if you look at say the Starbucks that are unionizing, you know, there's one store with seventeen workers. That's like seventeen new people in union. And then there's another (laughs) store with twenty workers, and that's twenty new people in union. But you are (laughs) never gonna move the needle by unionizing at like seventeen people at a time. No, you're really not. (laughs) If you got all the Amazon workers, that would help. I think some of it is we we have this sort of perception that this is happening more than it is because the, the places that are unionizing that have it before are somehow white-collar media people adjacent. It's either a media company <laughs> or the Starbucks they go to. or you know, And so it just creates this distortion field in terms of what we understand to be happening. Yeah. It's so rare that it gets covered a lot. It's kind of like crime, right? Everyone's like, there's so much crime. And if you look at the chart, it's much less than it used to be, but it gets a lot of attention. Talk, talking of which... Um... Uh, a minor erratum, I think, I should throw in here from last week. Many thanks to someone, I can't remember who, who wrote in. Um, and please keep the emails coming, slatemoney at slate.com, with a very good point. When I mentioned last week that the most powerful unions that I could think of were the big sports unions, the players' unions in football and baseball and basketball, and those guys were making millions of dollars and they had huge amounts of power. Um of course, the thing I forgot was the police unions. And the police unions are, for realsy, the most powerful <laughs> unions in America. For realsy. But yeah, I think that's it for us this week. Unless you are lovely and beautiful enough to be a Slate Plus member. And if you have the requisite degree of beauty and loveliness to be a Slate Plus member, your prize is to listen to a Slate Plus segment on the Kardashians. Um, otherwise, thanks for listening. Thanks to everyone at Slate who produced this. It was a whole team effort. And we will be back next week with ever more Slate Money. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.